here in Rancho Cordova. And we also operate a 70-seat live performance space, Calcat Black Box Theatre. Alessandro Asaf hadn't been on the theatrical stage for nearly two decades. So when she headed down on a Saturday morning to a local theater for a write-in workshop, she didn't think much would come from the experience. She stayed focused on her writing and never thought a return to the stage was in her future. Well, Ava Gardner, the late great Hollywood star, had other plans for Alessandra. From that writing workshop emerged 12 O'Clock Tales with Ava Gardner, a new solo show co-written by and starring Alessandra. The show takes place in 1974 when Gardner is on the set of Earthquake, her first Hollywood blockbuster in quite some time, according to press notes. While in her dressing room, she reflects upon her life from growing up in North Carolina to her advocacy of civil rights to her many films and romantic relationships over the years, including with Frank Sinatra. Alessandra recently performed 12 O'Clock Tales in Los Angeles to rave reviews, and we are delighted to bring her and her show to Rancho Cordova and Calcat Black Box Theater. Alessandra and I talked about her life growing up in New Orleans, living in Europe for several years, and finally landing in Los Angeles and Hollywood to pursue an acting career. I really enjoyed speaking with Alessandra, and I hope you enjoy the show. So, Alessandra, welcome to the Rancho Cordova podcast. How are you today? Thank you. I'm very happy to be here. It's good to see you. So, Alessandra, we're talking to you. Um, this podcast is about all things Rancho Cordova. Um, but today we're talking to you because you are going to be bringing your very highly acclaimed and well-reviewed one-woman show to to Roger Cordova and in particular to our theater here that we operate. And, um, and we'll get into all of that a little later about what the show's about and we'll even listen to a couple of clips. But I wanted to just talk to you because I met you recently and I found you to be a very interesting person. And, um, and I think we should share you with all our listeners here and with, uh, with Sacramento at large. So um, why don't we just start off? Just tell us a little bit about you. We just met in the elevator, and I say, well, hello, Alessandra. Tell me all about yourself. Just give me a little description, and then we'll get into your younger days and your performances and all that kind of stuff. Well, although I have been a Los Angelino since 2000, um, they say it takes uh, seven years to become a native. I still don't feel um, like a native of California, though I love this state immensely. Um, I am from New Orleans, and I think that is a big part of, of who I am, um, uh, being from that little port town on the southern coast of the United States. <laughs> um, uh, some might say it... Um, has left me with um, uh, having become a, a bit of a party animal in my old age. <laughs> right. How long have you been in, in Los Angeles? Uh, since 2000. Oh, okay. Yeah. And what brought you there? Well, two things. Um, I was an actor. I was a stage actor. 
And of course, this is a town um, full of actors, not such a theater scene here like you'd find in New York or London, but um, the theater scene is, is growing um, and has expanded since 2023. Well, the city has grown and um, it has attracted the arts um, in a way that really wasn't here in the early 2000s. But um, my husband was from Amsterdam and uh, he never wanted to see another raindrop as long as he lived. And um, he just loves California. So we decided to make the move and I started beating the streets to try to see what I could do as an actor. Right. So you came here to pursue, not here because we're in Sacramento, but you went to Los Angeles to pursue acting? Uh, yes, uh, but I didn't know I was doing. I, I um, again, have a theater background, and so I just immediately doing started doing what I knew to do, um, Shakespeare in the park and little plays here and there. And then one day my husband said, what are you doing all this theater for? I didn't come to Los Angeles to sit here by myself every night. This is a TV movie town get in front of the camera. And I said, oh, no, no, I, I, I don't know the first thing about acting for the camera. I can't do that, I can't do that. But um, I did try, I rolled up my sleeves and beat the pavement and gave it a good college try for a few years and uh, learned what I learned. But, um, you know, life has a way of, um, of uh, toying with us and uh, knocking us from side to side and here, hither and yon. and um, there have been a lot of detours along the way that have um, kept me from staying nose to the grindstone, pursuing um, an acting career. Okay. Well, that's a great point to let's start at the beginning. So you were born in New Orleans. And um, so tell us about your mother, your father, and you growing up. Well, my mother was an English teacher, and I do come from um, a family of immigrants, but um, speaking properly was always um, important in my family. The joke is, is that uh, my um, elder statesman, if you will, learned to speak English by listening to the radio. So we all came out sounding like uh, broadcasters. Right. Um, uh, to this day, people hear my voice and they go, oh my goodness, you sound just like your mother. When I was in high school, it was early, easy for me to play hooky from school because I could pick up the phone and pretend to be Mrs. Ossoff calling to say that Alessandra has a fever this morning and so I'm going to keep her home. Wow. <laughs> I'd, be out, I'd be out roller skating in the French Quarter and, and having beignets for breakfast. So it was that convincing? Your you could imitate your mother that convincingly? Yeah, they always they always bought it. They, I always got away with it. So when I first met you, I could have sworn you were British because you sound British. You almost have a British accent. Well, again, I um, uh, mid Atlantic speech. Uh, this is this is what was. It's it's nothing like a New Orleans accent. I tell you that New Orleans no. has a. Um, almost um, a New York sound. It's a port town and all those mixes of, of accents. You know, New Orleans is more like, hey, where you at? How you doing? It's good to see you. Right, right. 
It's very southern. Southern, right? It's got a bit of a southern twang. It's a little southern. New Orleans isn't so twangy. New Orleans, again, sounds a little bit more like Brooklyn because it's yeah. a port. But um, no, my mother what? forbade us from speaking improperly. Till the day she died, she was correcting our English. And um, So let's talk about your mother. So she was a teacher? She was an English teacher. She was also a dancer. Okay. So uh, a dancer and an English teacher. An art, a dancer who performed? Did she perform? Uh, she went to New York. She, in, in college, she was the president of the Modern Dance Society at LSU, Louisiana State University. And she went to New York and was studying with Merce Cunningham. And back then, they used to have those supper clubs. And um, she was one of the dancing girls at uh, one of those supper clubs in in New York. Um, and then, again, uh, her life took a detour. Um, she got hepatitis, not, not the hepatitis we talk about today, but it was bad enough for my aunt who lived in New York, her aunt who lived in New York to put her on a train home to New Orleans. And so then her, her life went on in a different direction. She met my father and I guess they fell in love and went on to have nine children together. Um, so you have eight siblings. I do. And what about your dad? Tell us about your father. What did he do? My father did everything. He was a workaholic. He was a businessman. He owned real estate property. He sold insurance. He did translations. He was in the restaurant business. I grew up in the restaurant bar business, um, um, which again is probably what's made me a bit of a party animal, but um, um, it's an exciting business. Um, um, a fun business, but it's a very, very, very difficult business. So he did a little bit of everything to to make sure that all of us had bicycles at Christmas time and shoes on our feet and the right uniforms when we went to our Catholic schools. And uh, um, yeah, he did everything. Okay. And then what? where are you in the scheme of nine children? Are you the eldest in the middle? the youngest smack in the middle i am not just the middle child i am the middle sister there's three girls and i am i am middle 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 wow so yes i and guess I, I have a bit of the jan brady syndrome right and then you went to high school in new orleans I went to high school in New Orleans. I went to an all-girls Catholic high school, and I was very, very frustrated there. That's where I started learning to play hooky because I was desperate to get kicked out of school because I wanted to go to the high school for the performing arts and study theater. Uh -huh. um, finally, I, I, I guess, misbehaved enough that for my senior year of high school, they let me go to the high school for the performing arts. Okay. And, um, I studied theater and loved it and uh, went on to getting a scholarship to my university alma mater, Southern Methodist University in Dallas, Texas, and um, was spoiled rotten there, um, doing shows and getting parts. And then I was spat out into the real world 
and went to Chicago to sow my wild oats as a young actor. I did get my equity card there, but um, boy, was it a rude awakening. I didn't even have a proper coat when I got to Chicago. I had never known cold like that. That was, oh my goodness. I thought I would get to Chicago and make my way east to New York, Um, but somehow or another, I ended up flying west and... So uh, in high school, before, during the times that you wanted to get out, did you know that you wanted to act on the theater stage? Did you always know that? The very first thing I ever remember saying that I wanted to be was an actress, but every little girl says she wants to be an actress. I mean, what do we know? We watch Gilligan's Island and we think an actress is being a glamorous lady like Ginger, you know, on on the show. My mother was surprised that I fought so hard to become an actor in high school. She said, actor, you're my writer. You're my writer. You're going to be a writer. She was, she was shocked by my um, desire to be an actor. And then college for you took the form of a performing arts college. Was that what it was? Or was it a regular college that you just happened to do theater? Uh, no, it was a, a BFA that I pursued there. They had conservatory style training at Southern Methodist University. There was a league at the time of professional theater um, um, colleges, um, North Carolina School of the Arts, Yale, um, um, what is it up in San Francisco, um, Southern Methodist University. So yeah. It was so that, it was a wonderful opportunity. So when you got out of college, did you immediately immerse yourself into into Yes. Uh, yeah. I I I I went to Chicago within a few months of graduating and um started auditioning and doing plays and um I didn't appreciate it. <clears throat> at the time. Um, Chicago was also very good to me. It's just being out on your own for a fir- the first time, I think beats up anybody, whatever profession you're in, those first few years after university are gonna be hard because there's nobody telling you where to be, where to go, what to think, what time to show up. Um, um, so it was, it was hard. It was a rude awakening how hard it was to, create a life for myself. But in retrospect, I look back and say, you know, I had a good track record in Chicago. They cast me. Um, I was getting work uh, on stage and um, building my way up. And like I said, I got my equity card, which is the union for um, theater actors um, from doing Shakespeare in the Park there in Chicago and, Yes, only in retrospect do I appreciate uh, my time. Chicago is a big theater town, I would say, next to New York and L.A. Probably Chicago is a huge theater town. So what are some of the early roles that you remember? Early roles that I remember? Well, I will tell you one of my favorite roles um, was um, playing uh, Nastasia Filipovna in an adaptation of um, Dostoevsky's The Idiot. Um, That was a plum role that um, I felt very 
honored to play. And uh, I remember with a friend, I really wanted to make it a film because I thought it would make such a beautiful um, uh, movie. Um, I wonder if anybody's ever done it. I don't think, I don't think so. But uh, um, uh, I did a lot of Shakespeare. I did once have the privilege to play Caliban in The Tempest, um, which was very unusual casting because Caliban is, um, depending on how you look at it, a bit of a scary creature, uh, a, a monster of this mysterious island. Um, and while you were doing all this, you were making a living doing it? You could survive? No. <laughs> I had to. And this is why I love mom and pops. You know, my family in the restaurant business, it was mom and pop, these restaurants and bars. Um, um, I would um, go get a job bartending somewhere for six weeks. And then um, for three months I was immersed in a play or I was having to negotiate with the owners of the place. Well, for these six weeks that we're in rehearsals, can I work nights? And then for these six weeks that we're running the show, can I work days? So I would get jobs at restaurants that were open for both lunch and dinner. Um, you know, I always wanted a home and, um, you know, an apartment. I was one of those girls who wanted to decorate and buy my bedding and paint the walls and all that other stuff. And I'd get myself a little apartment and I'd be so happy and I'd put the bookshelves in and make it all cute. And then I had to go someplace to go do a show and I was ending up subletting it and the dates didn't work. So I was sleeping on somebody's sofa for two weeks. Yeah. So you really, you really did the, the act in the life of an actor for sure. You lived that life. Yeah. And then how long were you in Chicago for? I was there for uh, two and a half years. Okay. And then where did your next travels take you? Well, actually, I did come to Los Angeles for a little while and um, met my husband, who, like I said, was from Amsterdam. And then I moved overseas to be with him. Ah. So you moved to Holland? I did move to Holland, and that's another another uh, little cul-de-sac I got looped up in. Um, we were going to move to Paris, and I have a brother who lives in Paris and two nieces there. And there's a huge American or English-speaking expat community in Paris. So um, the idea was for us to go to Paris. And then through a lawsuit and other headaches that my husband was embroiled in, we got stuck in Amsterdam. Now people are like, how could you be stuck in Amsterdam? Um, well, for me, if I were a painter or a musician, I think I would have been very happy in Amsterdam. But as someone who's very tied to my mother tongue, whose um, work, um, you know, uses the mother tongue, English. Um, I was really a fish out of water in Amsterdam and very frustrated there. Um, so getting to Paris where there's, I'm not religious, but the American church in Paris um, is a big like cultural and community center 
um, in Paris where they do um, wonderful productions. And I was so excited about getting to Paris and getting involved in the English speaking theater scene there as I would learn French and, you know, who knows where my French would have, would have taken me. But um, we got stuck in Holland and that became a detour. And then we came in 2000 to, um, to California and uh, I made our home here. So the, the Paris dream, the Paris experiment was aborted before it got off the ground. Okay. So just Holland and then straight here to, to or straight there to LA. Yes, although we did, we were always running off to France any chance we got. My husband used to say that uh, he completely understood the painter Van Gogh wanting to get out of that Calvinist, gloomy, gray, rainy, industrial country and go someplace where there were sunflowers and starry nights and... Um, so you would go, you would go to the south of France then? Um, all over. We were always, yeah. any chance we got, we were we were running to France. My husband was a real um, Francophile. Um, yeah. his, his lungs took a turn. And um, that's when he said, I never want to see another raindrop as long as I live. Right. And we moved to California. So when, what year did you land in Los Angeles? That was 2000. Oh, in 2000. Okay. Oh, so you, okay. And and that then and then you got yourself immersed in in the theater world there straight away. Uh, yes, I started doing theater again. Little ninety nine seat house um, plays and such, and that's when I guess it made my my husband was became a, a you know they talk about golf widows. He became right. a a theater widower. Right. <laughs> what are you doing? This is a film and TV town. Get in front of the camera. And you never sort of aspired to be a movie or television actor, no? Always theater? Yes, it was always theater for me. Well, I wouldn't have known. I, I don't think I distinguished then. To me, you, you do it all, you know, television, movies, theater, whatever opportunities come up. Um how do I say this without sounding falsely modest? I don't think I'm cut out for the camera. No. It just, uh, no, I, well, the first little short film I made, I just, I've had to learn how to mumble for the camera. Speaking the way I speak does not work on film at all. Um, and I like, I think I like the storytelling of a play. The, um, the continuity of it, of the beginning, the middle of the, and the end, and that you get to, to travel that journey um, every night. Um, uh, the little bit of film work that I have done is so um, disjointed. I'm terribly self-conscious about the way I talk, about the way I look, about um, what's reading on the camera. I've listened to countless interviews, you know, Kevin Spacey, I think said something like, it's just a matter of concentration. It's all coming from the same place, but it's a different concentration. And I never found the knack 
I never found the knack for it. Um, I think I like the rehearsal process that you get in the theater. I think uh, I love the camaraderie of a bunch of people coming together um, with the same passion for something. Um, and I just never quite had that experience um, getting in front of the camera. But that doesn't mean I'm closed to the notion if somebody said, hey, try out for this little project over here. And right, you would do it. You. I, I would do it. I would certainly yeah. do it. Well, having worked with both film actors and stage actors, stage actors to me are it's much harder than being a film actor. Because a film actor, if you forget your lines, they just say cut and you do it again. And then, you know, take one to take six until you get it right. Whereas on the theater, of course, you can't do that. If you forget your lines in front of an audience, well, you're pretty much screwed and you have to sort of pick it up. So to me, having seen both, I think theater actors are a lot more accomplished. Um, so what kind of roles did you do? Um, did you do any notable things in, in the time you've been in lots, and you know, until you got to your show? Um, oh my goodness, my, my brain is uh, drawing a blank. I played Mistress Quickly in three of um, Shakespeare's Henry plays. So you did a lot, because Shakespeare keeps coming up. So you've done a lot of Shakespeare. I have done a lot of Shakespeare. There was a time when I was a younger actor that I was like, I want to be in every Shakespeare play, even if it's wow. just two, even if it's just two lines. Um, so you like Shakespeare, I take it. I did. Um, I don't know if I have the brain cells to touch Shakespeare anymore. Like I said, in 2005, there was a major detour in my life. You know, that's another thing that I often think about here in California, where you have this whole new age philosophy and, and culture. You know, everybody talks about manifesting things for themselves. And, you know, if you can't manifest something for yourself, it's some kind of flaw in your um character and I want to say no um it isn't all about hocus pocus manifesting things life happens to people things come along there are det you know, detours uh, family problems that that take you off course no matter how right. strongly you desire something no matter how well you might envision something for yourself um, you know, as John Lennon said, life is what happens to you when you're busy making other plans. Shit happens and takes right. you in a different direction. Life plays with you and bumps you around like a ball in a pinball machine. And um, you, you can't always just manifest or want something so badly that it, it, it happens for you. Right. And then, so there came the point, obviously. So tell us about your uh, your solo show. What What is it called? Tell us the title of it. Well, the title is now 12 O'Clock Tales with Ava Gardner. And 12 O'Clock Tales comes from a famous song called Lush Life, um, which uh, Ava Gardner loved, supposedly when she lived in Spain, um, in Madrid, um, there was a bar that was a cave and there was an English speaking piano player there and she'd stand at the piano and she'd 
ask the piano player to play that song and she'd sing along with it and she'd cry. She was crying, of course, over Frank. Right. So why, so why did you choose Ava Gardner to do a show on? So I had left acting for a number of years. The last time I had performed was 2004. Like I said, there was a detour in my life and I started writing. That detour led me to writing. So maybe my mother was onto something um, when she said that I was her writer. Um, so in 2019, I walked into a free writing class with had no intention of acting. I knew people got up and told stories in that class, but I thought it was something like The Moth. I don't know if you're aware of The Moth on NPR. Um, it plays yeah. down here on Sunday mornings and people get up and tell 10 minute stories from their life. So I was going to this writing class, it was free. I thought people did things like The Moth. I wasn't aware that there was this whole soaring solo community where people were actually getting up and telling 90-minute stories. They were doing 90-minute plays that they've written all by themselves. But anyway, I had no interest in that. The teacher, a wonderful young woman, uh, Jessica Lynn Johnson, would take you through a guided meditation. And from that meditation, you'd start writing. Um, and I loved it. And I loved the camaraderie in the room. Um, and this theme started emerging where I was writing about beauty. It's, um, it's kept coming up. And, you know, all, all aspects of beauty. Um, there's a, a saint, I think her name is Saint Catherine. She was known as the, the Rose of Lima, Lima, Peru. And she was incredibly beautiful. And her parents knew that, you know, they could get a handsome dowry for her based on her beauty alone. But um, she wanted to dedicate her life to something else, to her spiritual life, to God. And so she rubbed pepper on her face to make herself disfigured and ugly um, because she didn't want to be known for her beauty. So these things started coming out in my writing, uh, Dante's Inferno, you know, the seven deadly sins. Um, envy is the only of the deadly sins that there's no fun attached to the sin. You know, gluttony and lust, you at least have fun while you're committing right. the sin. Right. Um, but uh, envy, it's painful from the minute you are struck with envy and uh, the punishment in Dante's Inferno was that those who suffered from envy would have to stand on the edge of a cliff blindfolded. So all this stuff about beauty and envy and beauty as a commodity started coming out in my writing. And I remember in my family, you didn't use the word beautiful unless you were speaking of Ava Gardner. I remember one night uh, watching The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson and he's introducing his next guest and he says, and the beautiful, talented Heather Locklear. And my father practically fell off the sofa. Beautiful, beautiful. She's cute, she's charming, she's adorable. No, Ava Gardner, Ava Gardner. Yeah. 
beautiful. So um, I don't know where all these musings about beauty were coming from, but it led me to Ava Gardner. But again, I had no intention of doing a show um, in that group with a lot of support, a lot of encouragement. They were like, get up, they'd see me week after week and they'd say, get up and pre present your work, get up. And you know, I wasn't presenting my work for the longest time. Um, and so I got up and started presenting my work and I got a lot of support for what I was writing. And I'm sad to say that I need that kind of support and encouragement and push, but, but right. I did. And well, they were like, you got to make this a show. You can do it. Da, 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 da. So, um, so prior to all this, did, were you, did you watch all Ava Gardner films? I watched all the Ava Gardner films. I, I, I do think she's stunningly beautiful. I knew at my age, I wouldn't be able to play or compete with uh, 25 year old Ava. And so I have set my play in, um, she's, She's in her dressing room, um, waiting to be called onto the set of the movie Earthquake. So right. she's in her mid fifties at this point. And, um, um, and that's where um, our play is set. Okay. Which is a great segue to tell us what the play is about. Well, there is a very exciting thing that happens. Out of the blue, um, someone proposes to her and she has to decide whether or not she's going to accept this proposal. Um, she is uh, worried about money and accepting this proposal would help her financially, but um, she's never been that kind of woman. She's always wanted and pursued love. I mean, she was the Venus of her time. She was the love goddess of her day. And the one thing she always wanted always eluded her. Um, so thinking about accepting or denying this proposal gets her on this trajectory of looking at her life and questioning herself and taking responsibility for the folly that her life had become, how she was um, complicit in a way, um, complicit in her own exploitation. You know, right. she had to make a living um, and she had this beautiful face but I think like the Rose of Lima, that face got in the way of what she really wanted was, which was to be loved. So in writing, is this, is it written from, um, like from fact, from actual events, or is it something that you just wrote? It's loosely based on actual events. Um, I did take some liberties um, here and there. Some parts of it are fictitious. Um, I guess you could say like the TV series, The Crown, um, you know, this happened and that happened and the other thing happened, but nobody really knows what the conversations behind closed right, doors exactly. were. 
And then did you always see your, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead. My, my first draft of the um, story was actually a cabaret show. Ah. Uh, Ava Gardner loved music and would have loved to have been a singer. But having grown up poor, you know, she didn't get singing lessons or anything like that. And Hollywood would never give her a chance to sing. Um, so I thought in my first um, round of the show, I would give, I'd let her sing in this incarnation of her life. Um, but that show back in 2020 was canceled uh, because of COVID. Um, and then in 2021, I decided to remount it and started working with a director by the name of Michael Laurie. Um, and he said, you know, I'm not sure about a cabaret show. I think this can make a really great play. So we together um, recrafted it to make it a play as opposed to a cabaret show. Right. Um, and so... No. Now, some people would hear play and might think that there are other actors, but this is just you, right? It's a solo show. A play with one actor, yes. Yeah. And um, how long did it take you to, to write it, to write the, the play? The, um, the cabaret show took me about a year. Oh. The play... I'd say we wrote it over the course of three or four months. Okay. Yeah, we had plenty of time on our hands during COVID too. Right. And that's when you and I first spoke was back in, uh, during those years, during those times. So if you were going to, um, if you, you wrote a play um, with music, that then must lead people to believe that you can sing. I do love to sing. Um, I, I think I'm a little bit like Ava. I can carry a tune. Um, yeah. I, I wouldn't say that I'm a legit singer. Um, you, you're not going to put me up next to Rosemary Clooney, but um, I. Uh, it's just another... Um, right, and as I've gotten to know you, I've learned that you say as it is. So if I ask you the question, are you a good singer?, you're going to give me an honest answer, not a modest answer, but an honest answer. So are you a good singer? Um, yeah, I can, I can sell a song. Yeah. And what kind of music do you like to sing? If you were to do your own cabaret show, what, what, what kind of music, what style would it be? Uh, gosh, I did have a cabaret show with a group of girls and I was always the funny Sophie Tucker type. Okay. I have a deeper voice and I like lyrics that are a little bit witty, maybe a little bit bawdy. Um, you know, I'm not going to do some rangy soprano torch song. Um, right. there was another girl. She, she had that corner. Right. Right. Okay. So you, now you have the play written. Now, I know a little bit of something about solo shows. Solo shows are very difficult to do because you're on stage for a whole hour or, or what, however long. Sometimes it's longer than an hour, but you're certainly on stage for an hour. Um, if you're doing a play and the script is, you know, 50 pages, there might be three other actors. So that means that, you know, your part of it might be 10 pages. 
But here you've got 50 pages that you have to do yourself. You have to memorize everything and you have to bring it to life. You have to act it and you have to be believable. So had you ever done anything like that before? Never. Right. Never. If I had known what I was getting into. And the thing is, I would get so frustrated trying to memorize these damn lines because I'd say, but I wrote it. You think I know it? Because when you write, you you read it over right. and over and over again. Why why didn't it make the grooves in right. my 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 joke is that um, when people say, "How did you learn all those lines?" and I say, "A lot of candy." My neighbor right. across the street, Candy, would come over, and she'd <laughs> drill me hours on end to get these these lines <laughs> in my head. But even still, I mean, I can know the lines up left and center in my sleep. And when you're on stage, you know, that gun goes off and you are out of the gate. Um, anything can happen. Anything right. can just throw you and take you off. And you have to backpedal and try to catch the thread again. Um, it's exciting. Right. So you went into rehearsals with your first director, Michael Laurie. Was that your first director? That was yeah. my first director, yes. So how how do you go about that? How do you start rehearsals on on something which is very difficult to do? Do you start at the beginning or how how does what's the process? Um well first it's a lot of uh table reads. You're sitting around the table and you're reading it and you're talking about um what the motivation is where are we going what is the end result so what is the um through line of the whole thing we're trying to get from a to z um and well how does this moment get us closer to z and then you move on to the next moment how does that moment get you closer to z and then you know sometimes in that process you realize well, I've written this little thing here, but really it's it's a cul-de-sac that's not getting us closer to the destination. It's actually a distraction. So um, there was a lot of sitting around the table vetting the material to get us to Z. And in that process, uh, there's a whole lot of discovery of um, what those moments will look like so that you're not just playing one note right and today the play is I, I think an hour roughly right it's about an hour in length um it's longer than that i i think it's clocked at 80 minutes on a yeah. good day it's 77 minutes okay so an hour and 15 minutes let's say how how long was the first incarnation of it uh, I, I believe Here's to Life, the cabaret show was about 90 minutes. Yeah. Um, and then when uh, Lori and I worked together, it was about 90 minutes, but with an intermission. And then Lori's life took a detour and he wasn't able to come back to the project. So I worked with Michael A. Shepard came on as my director and um, he decided against having an intermission and in cutting out the intermission, we also cut about 10 minutes off the script. Right. 
I actually agree. I don't think solo shows should have an intermission. Um, I think it should be run through. And then, so then there comes a point when you have to get on a stage now and you have to rehearse it and you have to sort of block it and you have to... On your feet. And actually getting on your feet helps with the memorizing. Right. Even now when I am rehearsing it, if I'm just sitting in the chair, I'll forget the lines. I, I will remember the lines because I know that I'm walking over there and I'm picking up my pack of cigarettes. Ava Gardner was a great smoker. Um, and uh, it helps me to memorize, to remember where I am moving around right. the, 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 uh, the space um, helps jog the memory and gets the lines back clicked in. But right. just sitting in the chair trying to do the lines, I get lost. Right. And these questions I'm asking because I'm sure there's people that would be listening who, you know, think I could do a solo show and I I'm just going to do, but they're not that easy to do. They're very difficult solo shows. What, uh, like, let's say you met someone and they said to you, hey, I want to do a solo show about whoever. What, what would your advice be to that person, having now done one, which is, and it's turned out to be a successful show? Uh, I might advise that they do something shorter form at first to see if they've got it um, in the, their system. I would definitely um, advise not to go it alone. Um, in my program for this show, I uh, wrote, you know, um, solo show, my ass. There isn't anything solo about it. I could not have done this without so many people coming on board and breathing life into right. this thing. I called on so many friends to, to help me out. But, um, you know, an hour, an hour and a half, an hour and 15 is a huge, huge undertaking. And, um, I think it would probably be wise to test the water with something shorter first. You know, maybe right. make an evening with a couple of friends where you each do 20 minutes and see how it works out and then you can always develop it further. Uh, most of my friends in the Soaring Solo community here are telling personal stories, stories about their own lives. Right. And and what they've uh, been through, um, whether it's abusive relationships or um, a cancer battle or, um, um, so there's a lot of uh, personal stories being told, which I find so incredibly brave. Um, you know, uh, Ava's story does certainly call upon um, a lot of things from my personal life, but I do have that um, that that uh, curtain of Ava to hide behind. So right. I'm not really telling the story of my life, but people find it very healing to get up and tell their own personal stories. And having seen, I have having seen, you know, a lot of photos from your show and video. Um, you on stage you do you put yourself in in poses 
um, that have, and I and I certainly know Ava Gardner. Uh, I don't know her, but you, you know what I mean. I know the type of, of actress that she was. And the poses are very, very convincing. Did you study, did you have to study her as an actress in order to be able? Watching her movies and, um, you know, both of my directors um, uh, were fluent in the MGM um, training of the day. Um, back in those days, whenever you were signed on to a contract with the different um, RKO, Columbia, MGM, whoever they were, they, they put you through school. I mean, Ava got to Hollywood with a very thick North Carolina accent, so thick, she was uh, indecipherable. People couldn't understand what she was saying. So right. she had elocution classes. She learned how to walk. Um, um, she learned how to sit. She learned how to stand up. She learned how to glide. Um, they taught her. She was in in classes, um, learning that that old MGM. It's it's why some of the youngsters today don't care for the old black and white movies because they think everything sounds so so inauthentic. But it was the style of acting at the time, um, and she was a very good student. She learned her craft. She learned what MGM taught her to do. Um, right. And so I had to to pick up on that. Um, well, you certainly done a very good job. How what what was the um, rehearsal process for you? To the point that you said, "Okay, I'm now ready to do this in front of an audience." How long was that process? Uh, this last round with Shepard and I, um, I think we started in October and we opened the show. Uh, January 15th. We did, of course, have breaks in between because of holidays and birthdays and, and all that stuff. Um, I did not know um, if I was ready opening night. Right. I was sick to the stomach, shaking like a leaf. Um, really, I did not think that I could do it. Right. And what is is it that you thought you'd forget the lines, you'd forget the blocking? What what was your fears? Or people wouldn't like it? All of the above. That I was yeah. going to miss my cues, forget my lines, not hit the punchline properly to get the laugh. Right. That people weren't going to buy me as um Ava Gardner. Um um, that people weren't going to be compelled by her story. Um, um, so a lot of second, a lot of second guessing. Because I, I, you know, because I also wrote it, I conceived of this thing. Um, I felt like I was going to be judged for my writing as well as my acting, as well as the way I look and. Who does she think she is? That's no Ava Gardner, you know. Right. Um, um, that there were just so many ways that I could fail, right. and facing failure in front of a bunch of people is a pretty scary thing. Right. So, um, I did um, see a um, hypnotist who made me um, a recording that I would listen to, um, especially when I'd wake up at three o'clock in the morning in a panic. I'd 
plug my little ear pods in and, and listen to the, um, the meditation that she made for me um, to find my, my moxie so I could get out there. Well, everything definitely turned out okay because I just happened to have, I don't know, maybe 10 reviews here from the run you did in LA. And I'm just going to read just the, the first couple of words of each review. So here we go. So Stage Raw, which is a magazine in Los Angeles that reviews stage shows. So the, the first few words, Stage Raw Top 10 recommended. And then we have Stage Scene LA, Wow Spellbinding. Splash Magazine, Entertaining and Intriguing. The Hollywood Times, A Tour of the Force. Two Urban Girls, An Amazing Theatre Production. The Larchmont Buzz, A Knockout Show. And then uh, Glamical, I think it's called, Entertaining and Witty. So these, all these reviews came out within the first few performances, right? Yeah, first week or two. So you went on stage worried that you would forget your lines and couldn't pull it off, et cetera, et cetera. And if I was to read, um, I'll just read one. Asav has audiences believing that Ava Gardner has somehow miraculously risen from the grave. And that's by someone called Stephen Stanley from Stage Scene LA, who's a, you know, an acclaimed theatre reviewer. So those things, you know, they don't lie in the audiences. I know you, you, you know, well, you were well received. So you did this play during something called Solo Fest in Los Angeles. Is that right? Yes, at the Whitefire Theater, the artistic director, Brian Rasmussen, um, takes on this feat every year uh, where he does about 50 solo shows in 70 days. I right. think it's, it's the biggest solo festival in the United States, if not, anyway. Uh, it's, it's second to the New York solo show, but it's certainly the second largest and rapidly catching up to New York. But being having a solo fest show in Los Angeles, now you're dealing, you know, you've got the creme de la creme who are in LA doing solo shows. So tell us how, other than the reviews that I read, tell us what happened with Solo Fest. Well, I had spoken to someone very wise who suggested instead of just booking one night, because a lot of these solo artists, they do one night during Solo Fest, and then they move on to other festivals around town. Right. You know, there's L.A. Women's Festival. So if you're a woman with a solo show, you can jump into that one. There's another festival um, called Fringe Fest. Right. Where they're doing shows, all different kinds of shows, round the clock. So right. uh, there is a circuit um, that you can find here in Los Angeles to do your show. Um maybe one time at this theater, maybe two or three times at that theater. Um, so I spoke to Brian uh, at the Whitefire Theater and asked him if I could have eight consecutive Sundays during the solo fest, because I think a play needs to marinate. 
it's right. going to change and it's going to grow and you're going to start to feel what the audiences are responding to um, and know what to amp up, what to rev up, rev up or what to pull back on. And I really wanted to give myself that experience. I didn't want it to be a one-off experience. So I was very fortunate that Brian was open to my booking eight Sundays and I chose the matinee because I thought um, my show might attract an older crowd, people who remembered Ava Gardner. And I'm very happy to say that um, um, she appealed to um, uh, younger audiences as well. I got great responses from young people because Ava was actually ahead of her time. She had the mores of today's millennial. She, um, um, I think the term they use nowadays is agency. You know, she had agency over her own body. She believed right. in a woman's right to choose. Before there was Black Lives Matter, she was um, very active with the NAACP. Um, she was politically progressive and involved in politics. Um, 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 uh, agency over her sexuality. She wasn't ashamed to say that she um, enjoyed her sexuality. Um, and then, of course, Hollywood um, slut-shamed her uh, for it. So she was really um, ahead of her time. And I think the younger people who came to see the show really responded to that. They were like, gee whiz, wow. Um, you know, other uh, iconic actresses from that era, Betty Davis, Marilyn Monroe, um, they're on T-shirts, they're on, you know, their images are still uh, prominently out there. But I think Ava um, uh, runs the risk of being forgotten. Right. Despite the fact that she was a real... Um, powerhouse of a woman she is someone to be admired right um solo fest as you mentioned has 50 plus um solo shows over the over the time that it goes on but you you won an award of sorts right over everybody else <laughs> yes after solo fest um Brian and his team put their heads together and they choose um, best of the fest. Yeah. And um, uh, I was selected to come back and do a one-off performance. So there's a, there's a season that's about to start that's called best of the fest and right. the best shows from the festival. And do, and do they pick a winner from that or is it, they leave it at that just the best. They leave it at that. We all get they our, leave it at that. Yeah. our okay. laurel wreath and, and get to come and do a reprise performance. Right. I'm thrilled to have been selected, and I'll be performing that on June 10th here in... At, um, at the White Fire Theatre. But people here, obviously, are going to have to wait because you are going to be here at our theatre, which is called Calcat Black Box Theatre, on July 21st. 22nd and 23rd so july 21st is a saturday uh, a friday and then at a saturday both of those shows are 7 30 and then the 23rd is at 2 30 
So this is a great point to listen to a clip of the show, and you've chosen this clip. So before we listen to it, why don't you set the stage for what the what we're going to hear on this clip? Well, um, if people don't remember, they should remember that uh, Ava Gardner was once married to Frank Sinatra, and um, their fights were legendary, um, uh, as well as their love affair. Um, so uh, this little clip um, is is uh, a little bit about a little glimpse into one of the fights that Ava Gardner had with with Frank Sinatra, and it involves another um, screen siren um, with whom Ava was great friends, uh, Lana Turner. Okay. And this clip was recorded, it's obviously you, and it was recorded at one of your performances at White Fire Theatre. So let's take a listen, and then we'll continue on the other side. Frank? Frank, is that you? Oh, there's my girl. You know, I've been thinking, we ain't kids no more. How about one more run around a maypole, baby? Let's forget all that nonsense from the past. Marry me, angel. You know, you're the only woman worth dying for, but you say no, I'm gonna marry Barbara Mott. Uh, let me stop you right there, Francis. Who wrote this script? Your bookie? Well, here's your answer. Slam. Cocksucker. <laughs> so that is a taste of what is to come. And you even sound like Ava Gardner. Obviously, people are just gonna listen here. They're not going to see this. They're going to hear. Um, so once again, the show is July, the, the um, 12 o'clock Tales with Ava Gardner at the Calcat Black Box Theatre. You can see Alessandra live and in person. Uh, Friday, July 21st, Saturday, July 22nd at 7.30. And then Sunday, July 23rd at 2.30 p.m. So, Alessandra, as we come to a close here, what's what's... A couple of questions. What's the plan that you, what's an ideal plan or scenario you would like to see with the show? And what's next for Alessandra Asav? Well, um, I would like to tour the show around the country. Um, I definitely want to take it to Palm Springs. Um, I think that there are audiences out there that would. Um, really enjoy it. I am from New Orleans. My sister keeps saying that I have to get it to the World War II Museum um, in New Orleans because, of course, Ava did start as a pinup girl um, to lift the morale of the soldiers of, of, of that time. Um, so that would be a perfect place. And of course, taking it to my hometown would be a thrill. But um, because uh, since about 2004, my concentration has been um, writing more than acting. This show has been marked my return to the stage after, um, um, you know, a practically uh, 19 year absence. Um, th there are little um, uh, bugs in the back of my brain. It's like, you've got to get this story written and you've got to get that story written and um, you've got to do something with that other piece that you started and is sitting in a computer somewhere. Um, 
So, uh, an ideal life for me would be able to write in between um, taking the show on tour. Right. And I, knowing a little bit of uh, something about this, I don't think you're going to have a problem. And I think these reviews that you, you got in Los Angeles, which is a very tough theater town, by the way, for reviews, that's just going to sort of duplicate as you go around. Um, so, Alessandra, thank you very much for being with us here in Rancho Cordova. Now, you, you may, maybe you've never listened to this show, but we do have a tradition that we end this show with a quick fire round of questions, fun questions, completely unrelated to the show. And listen, we've had police chiefs and mayors and city managers, and they all do it. Um, and I spring it on them just like I am with you. So would you like to have a bash? Okay. So let's tell us what is one word others would use to describe you? Unloving. And what is one word that you would use to describe yourself? Sensitive. Very good. This one, I have a feeling the answer, but maybe we should. Okay, before I ask you the question, I don't think it should be Ava Gardner. If you could be a person for a day besides yourself, who would it be and why? Unless, of course, it has to be Ava Gardner. Uh, she's she's tempting. I I would love yeah. to know, but but um um oh I don't want to um offend anyone, but um uh, you know I would love to be someone like Neil deGrasse Tyson or yeah. uh, Barack Obama. Someone. Yeah, yeah. No, listen. A lot of people say exactly the same as you. What is your biggest pet peeve? Tardiness. Tardiness. If there's what is one app on your phone that you cannot live without? Oh dear, I am so lousy at cell phone. Um <laughs> so you know, maybe you don't use apps. I'm not a big app person, by the way. My my app that I couldn't live without is getting from A to B. So the map, you know, the directional, the map one. But if you're not an app person, that's okay. I, I'm not a cell phone person, but I think um the voice memo app is a very good one. Yeah. What's something about you a few people would know? Um, very few people have witnessed me crying. Really? Yes. Yeah. And if I got into Alessandra's car and I turned on the radio, what am I going to hear? <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> 80s dance music. 80s dance music? No, I would. Yeah, I, I can see that. And finally, what is the biggest lesson that you've learned from your mother? Tenacity. Tenacity. And finally, finally, the biggest lesson you learned from your father? Uh, um, a, a certain um, caution, um, care, respect for money. And that's it. So that wasn't too bad. You did very well. So, Alessandra, thank you very much for being here. We've been speaking with Alessandra Asav, who will be at Calcat Black Box Theatre right here in Rancho Cordova on July 21st, 22nd, and 23rd. And for tickets and for more information, and you can actually see photos from the set in Los Angeles, and you can actually watch a video clip 
of the show, you can visit our website, which is www.calcapblackbox.com. Alessandra, thank you again very much for your time and for being here. And I am personally very much looking forward to seeing you here and to present your show to the audiences here in Sacramento. Thank you. I cannot wait to meet Sacramento. I'm looking forward to it. Thank you. Thank you. Well, there you have it, folks. That's it for this week. And until next time, I really hope you enjoyed this show. And if you'd like to purchase tickets for 12 O'Clock Tales, please visit our website at www.calcapblackbox.com. That's C-A-L-C-A-P blackbox.com. And if you enjoyed the show, please tell all your friends and send us any comments you may have to our website. Thank you for listening. My name is Charles Lego, and until next time. Mm-hmm.